It's a great pleasure to welcome back for part two of this brilliant book. And I, I have the older one here. Outthink the competition, how a new generation of strategists sees options others ignore. It's a brilliant book. There's one up for grabs for one lucky member of the innovation show Substack. And we're joined once again by the author of that brilliant book, the tactician himself, the master strategist, Kai-Anne Krippendorf. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Aiden. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back. And we teed up our audience the last day with a little teaser of the, the five moves really that somebody would use in asymmetrical strategy. Maybe we'll jump into them and I'll start, I'll tee you up with each, maybe with a quote or something from that chapter. This is part two of the book. And the first tactic is to move early to the next battleground. And I love again, the Sun Tzu quotes, the tip of the hat back to the 36 stratagems, all stuff we talked on about on the earlier episodes. And you say here, he who is first to battle is at ease. He who was late to battle at labor. That's a Sun Tzu quote. Over to you. I mean, all of these five are chosen from the 36 stratagems. Do you understand that? There are 36, I believe there are 36 fundamental strategic patterns. And as the environment that we compete in changes, some of them are better than others, are more timely. And so this first one is the stratagem, await the exhausted enemy at your ease which is to say, to get there first. It's a sort of first mover advantage, you could say. Um, of course, Sun Tzu says sometimes first mover advantage is good, sometimes it's bad. But what we can see is that successful companies today, they talk statistically at a statistically significant frequency more often of this idea of playing for tomorrow rather than today versus their competitors. So you take two companies, same size, same industry, one's outperforming the other, the one that's outperforming is more likely to be talking about playing for tomorrow than their peer is likely to be talking about it. This is skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is, right? Many years ago, I got to interview Elon Musk because I went to school with him in college. And um, like I couldn't get to him now, but I, um, I, I used that to be able to get to him before he was as big as he is now. He had sold PayPal and he would invest $150 million. And he that he got from selling PayPal and he invested that in building rocket ships and you know SpaceX. I said, well, why do you do that? And he said, I just think a future in which anyone can shoot stuff in the space is more exciting than one in which only the government can, right? And so I asked him to explain that to me and he said, what well, I got to realize is for him, exciting meant it's the, the path of innovation. It's sort of like how entropy is always increasing. Excitement is always increasing. So what is the excitement leading us to? It's leading to us to an interplanetary species that humans become interplanetary species. So if we take that as the next battleground, the question is, what's it going to take to get there? What's going to take to get there is to bring down the cost of building and launching a rocket ship. How is that going to happen is governments are going to privatize the near space uh, activities of their space programs, which then will drive down the cost of building and launching rocket ships. So he said, I'm going to build the company that's perfectly tailored to take that job off of the hands of initially NASA, but then others. And so that's sort of, that's the thinking. There's some great examples. And I'm going to come back to Elon Musk as well. And I was thinking about that when you said you went to college with him. And you know the way there can be 
anxiety about going back to your 10 year and your 20 year reunion. And it's like, going to go on a, I don't know how well I did comparison <laughs> to other people. That's going to be, that's a tough comparison. Yeah. Everybody's like, is Elon gone? Cause I'm not going to full go. What are you up to Elon? <laughs> but, uh, let, let's give another example. The, the great example that you give here and a brilliant example for people to understand is the pill pack case study that you cover deeply in the book. I remember your guests, I'm sure you've had one or more that talk about uh, the exponentiality of the advancement of some technologies, right? With Moore's law introducing it. So we have this improvement in performance of cost being exponential rather than linear. And what that means is that we, for those technologies, we underappreciate how quickly they will improve. So the future is getting to us more quickly in some areas. And so there are things like what PillPack did. So PillPack, created by a second-generation pharmacist. He's working at his dad's pharmacy, and he realizes that people who have multiple prescriptions have a really tough time at the drugstore. They have to leave their house multiple times. They get these different bo bottles. They, they can't open them. They get confused. They don't know what to take when. And so he just sort of mentally wipes the whiteboard and says, how should this work? The way it should work is you don't leave home, the drugs get delivered to you, which by itself is not an easy feat to do because there are all kinds of regulations about, you know, transporting drugs. Secondly, it doesn't make sense that you get them in a pack. That, that That's efficient for the manufacturer, right? Johnson & Johnson wants to put their pills in one thing and Pfizer wants to put their things in another. That helps the manufacturer. It doesn't help me. I need to then sort them. So they should already come pre-sorted in little plastic bags. And the plastic bag might say 8 a.m. Monday, and then you can just rip it open and take just those pills that you need to take at 8 a.m. on Monday, right? So he finds a partner. They enter a business plan competition. They get some funding. They start operating. Just a, a, just, a, just a pharmacist, right? It's like, and I'm, I mean, not saying just a pharmacist, but he, he's just a pharmacist that saw the future. Anyway, he builds this. He gets licensed to do it in 48 states in the U.S., and then six years later, Amazon buys it for a billion dollars. So a billion dollars in value creation by this kind of thinking. And I think this points to the, uh, the point earlier about asymmetric, right? It's not that Amazon couldn't have done this. It's not that big drug companies couldn't do this or, 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 or pharmacies couldn't do this. It's that they didn't do this, Right. So the whole premise of strategy as doing something that your competitors can't do is the majority of time not the reason that you win. They choose not to do it. Blockbuster chooses not to buy Netflix. Yahoo chooses not to buy Google. And so if we correct that assumption that you got to do something you don't do, it will open up a plethora of new ways to play. One of the things I, I really understood here was was the first of that point about not choosing to, because later on in the book, and we might get there, I'm not sure, but I, I'll throw it in here because you mentioned it is, one of the big pieces of resistance that many, many leaders come up with, say, for example, some of the people you coach. So Kayan coaches many innovators or corporate innovators with inside organizations and they often face this meeting where they're presenting the big idea the disruptive idea to the organization the leadership team is there and 
oftentimes the leader will say, "What our when when our competitor catches or our competitor will just copy us," and that's where you have teed up your people, the people you've coached, your coaches, to answer with this. And I think maybe we should emphasize this point because it's so so important that many many case studies we've seen in innovation they looked at the disruptive technology they even started doing it in the case of blockbuster and then they ousted the very people who were actually driving that change and this happens time and time again two, two things like I, I i used to use this frame these these first they they don't conceive of it so they haven't thought of it then they conceive of it they see you're doing it but they don't choose it because they think it won't work then if they don't choose it long enough, then um, they can't, eventually they can't do it. Um, yeah, conceive, choose, can't. There's a fourth C there somewhere. It's, I, anyway, but you get the point, right? Um, but the thing is that I think that we try to say there is one reason that your competition won't do it. If you, if you follow Clayton Christensen, it is they have a conflicting agenda and so they choose to protect their core business rather than embrace the new. For me, of the 36 stratagems, there's this one stratagem that's called um, the deer in the headlights moment. That's one example, right? But another reason could be they're not thinking about tomorrow. They don't think tomorrow's going to get there fast enough, right? And if we go through the other five that we that you know, in the book, it could be that they're trying to control things rather than coordinate them. They're not thinking of that. It could be that they're defining themselves by their industry and you're defining yourself by something. Else. It could be that they're just trying to make money and they don't appreciate the power of also doing good. It could be that they're playing inside the categories and they don't realize that you're creating a, a, a new category. There are 36 reasons why they would choose not to. And so what the 36 stratagems allows you to do and the, you just take that and you plug it into the outthinker process, which is step three of the five steps of the outthinker process, you come up with basically 36, Try 36 different reasons why they won't fight me or resist me or copy me. I love that. And, and we covered this before. And I just want to remind our audience, those who may, may not have heard that episode, Kaihan has a deck of cards, essentially, that where you basically draw each card. And the way I see them almost is like you have this blank slate of your eyes and you put on these lenses and you look through and go, "Where? how does it look from that perspective? And you reminded me of, the, the the story you tell in this book where many people won't remember this but when Notre Dame beat Navy and how it was with a totally new tactic and maybe we'll share that because it speaks to them that sometimes the incumbent will then acquire not your business but the tactics that you use. So the tactics can evolve. Sometimes the tactics evolve just because people discover that we could have always done it this way. That was the Fosbury flop example that we talked about. You could have done that before. The Notre Dame example is the rules changed and it allowed for the first time you to pass the ball a long distance before it was limited to a parallel pass. You could pass it sideways, which is, I think you can, in rugby, you can only, you can only pass sideways if, if I'm right. Yeah. Backwards. So, so that, that was the rule in American football. Then they changed the rule. Why did they change the rule? Because they felt like it was too dangerous uh, because people were kind of mashed up against. So they created a rule. Now, Notre Dame realized that it needed to learn how to play this new way. And so they had two guys that practiced all year and they created this position of quarterback or changed the, what the quarterback does and they learned how to pass it. So then they go up against Army. Army is the dominant school. 
almost as a favor to Notre Dame, they invite them to play. It's almost like an exhibition game. It'd be like, you know, it's like it's like Messi is playing now in the, in the United, United States League. It's like Messi said, okay, come and play with me, right? Um, but you know he's going to win, right? You know Army's going to win. But they get discombobulated because every time they go up to on the line, Notre Dame passes it over their heads. And then when they back up to try to catch the ball, Notre Dame runs it. So they can just run, pass, run, pass, run, pass, and Army does not know how to respond. So that is, say, a, a tactical or strategic innovation. It describes exactly the case study where, or the case where I, I see what you're doing and then and maybe concurrently you're doing something over here or I have to do something over here. I have to protect the business as it was and then reinvent this over here for the future. And then it's that dilemma that you consi consistently talk about in the book is that I'm kind of going, I, I don't know which to do. And it reminds you, I mean, from a sports perspective, you can see that, like, do I tackle him? Do I tackle that guy? What do I do? I, and I haven't built the capability. And where where I was going with this was, then we either sign up all those players or we sign up the coach. And I thought about how with PillPack, this is kind of what Amazon did. Amazon looked and kind of go, they've built something that we probably possibly have thought about, but didn't have the time to yet get to. So let's fast track that part of our strategy and then fast track the heck out of it by using our technology and our fulfillment to bring it to life to a whole new level. Right. Yeah, because there are best practices that Amazon can bring that um, PillPack doesn't have. So some of the current pra best practices, when the game changes, those could be either still good best practices, Amazon still delivering efficiently to the end customer. That's a really helpful capability. Some of them are irrelevant. Some of them could actually be detrimental. They're habits that run against the, the winning strategy. So being able to forget I think in, in you you've probably heard heard this when some several of your guests I'm sure have said it is you know just the art of forgetting practices right so the rules change the stuff that would that helped you win before some of it either is irrelevant or actually hurts you and do you have the mental flexibility to stop forgetting it and so you look for those things that your competitor will be slow to forget and you do that and in the gap of them adopting the new better practice you're allowed to you're allowed to win as gandhi said first they ignore you then they laugh at you well it, it reminded me there when you talked about that of um the the rugby world cup which was just on so the final was on a red card essentially decided it and i always people kind of go i can't believe the guy was so stupid to make a tackle that way but when you've been trained to tackle in the old way it's very difficult to retrain that skill that maybe you've been doing since a kid to be able to retrain. And, and then it decides the game. You know what I was like? Oh, this is kind of what happens in innovation is it's not just strategic, it's cognitive. Which is why I, I like to call these patterns narratives. You're living in a narrative. We were mostly li reliving past narratives that are subconscious. 90% of human action behavior is driven by subconscious. And I think like what you've done is you've, experience tackling that way so many times that you're just reliving a past narrative. I love the what you say here next, and maybe you'll give us an example of Apple here because you, you look at Apple a lot and how things like timing, knowing, not necessarily having all the tools for that, 
for that play, but then making the play better than those, everyone else. And I'll tee you up here because you say, here's how this play works. One, someone tests out a new innovation. So let somebody else establish the ground, work really hard. Two, the innovation should be attractive to, to consumers, but adoption is slow either because consu- con- customers do not understand the innovation or because another barrier appears in the system. Then three, the initial innovator invests in changing the system, influencing cus- consumer behavior, for example, thereby initiating a battleground shift that will allow the innovation to succeed. Number four, the system loosens and people start adopting at that early stage. And then number five, unfortunately for the person who did all the work until now, someone else, e.g. Apple, who owns critical strategic assets, steps in, draws the wind from the innovator's sales and takes the innovation for themselves. Maybe you'll give us a couple of examples or one even of that. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of the opposite of getting there first. That's kind of like the awareness of of, of the, the times it's, it's good to be uh, second. There, Sun Tzu has something like seven different grounds, and um, one of them is a big open field. And then big open field, you don't want to occupy it first because there's so many ways to get on it afterwards. But if you've got a valley or if you have a high ground, then if you occupy that first, it's hard for the competitor, your enemy, to to extract you. So you want to be thinking about, well, sometimes it's better to be second. We did this... Um, I can now share about this because this is from a long time ago, um, but I did a, I've done a lot of work inside Microsoft. There's one workshop we did where we came up with the Microsoft playbook. So we have there are five that in the book are the generically, g- generally the five. And then we came up with the Apple playbook and the Google playbook. And then we looked at different opportunities and said, if we want to get into mapping, how would Apple do it? How would Google do it? How do we do it? And Microsoft playbook a big part of the playbook is get there first, is move early to the next battleground. At least they try to do that. Apple, a very common playbook, they won't admit it, but if you look at the pattern of, of, of behavior, it is get there second, be a, be a, be a, be a fast follower. Um, um, uh, to catch something first, let it go is a pattern. Let your competitor go, right? So you see that over time, we did this one workshop where we were looking at, I mean, this is, I mean, this is just so fascinating to like look at, if you b- break apart what Apple seems to do, so, you know, they, on, they launched the iPad, right? It is a new category. That's create something out of nothing, which is one of the patterns of the five, right? And we do this workshop at Microsoft, and it was, it was more of an exercise, for, uh, like a learning exercise. And we had a group of like 30 really smart Microsofters, Microsofties, or whatever they're called. And, they, and, and the question is, Apple is about to launch this thing that wasn't, we didn't know it was called the iPad yet. How do we respond? And what they looked at, they looked at these market share reports, and there is a line item that is a tablet computer. And they looked at it, and they said, the tablet computer is a very small segment, and it's growing very slowly, and we already have a solution for the tablet. There's nothing, overall, there's nothing for us to do, right? But Apple started changing people's behavior. They frame it initially as, I mean, this... This tablet can do all kinds of things, but what do they sell it as? They sell it as the ultimate ebook reader. And so they're telling us, oh, instead of buying that, that ebook reader, buy this one. But then when we buy it, then we discover we can do all these other things. So they link it to an existing behavior and a job to be done that we already are getting done with something else. We already know we have that job to be done. We adopt it. And then we realize, oh my God, there are all these other jobs to be done that either we are not getting done 
and now we could, or we were getting it done with something else, but now I've got this thing in front of me. They they expand the uh, the tablet market and they dominate it. The thing about this book, just for our audience as well, is that Kaihan has loads of examples of companies he worked with, so it's not theoretical, and it fuses all his previous books in there. For example, this next one's coordinate the uncoordinated, and I'll tee you up here with a Sun Tzu quote, and you give us any example you want, and maybe decipher what this what this next skill is. But Sun Tzu said, with formation, the army achieves victories, yet they do not understand how. Everyone knows the formation by which you achieved victory, yet no one knows the formation by which you were able to create victory. Therefore, your strategy for victories in battle is not repetitious, and your formations in response to the enemy are endless. Sun Tzu. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, at the beginning of a, of, a, of any game, um, the, the, the form by which you play the game is different than at the end. Like in chess, you have a beginning, you have a middle end. Beginning, you have a lot of possibilities, and it's hard to know where things are going to evolve. At the end, there are fewer pieces on the board, and you can start narrowing them down. You can sort of use logic to predict, if I do this, then they'll do this. If I do this, they'll do this. But at the beginning, what you're doing is, what Sun Tzu is doing, what, what great strategists are doing is, they're moving a piece from here to here. And, you know, you see them moving the troops over onto this mountain. And then the tanks are split. And then, and, and, but you can't see what is going to happen yet. So it's about creating power through formation. And what we are seeing across like lots of different applications is power increasingly comes from coordinating pieces. And it's, we're able to coordinate pieces in ways that we couldn't coordinate them before. One woman that I um, did a workshop for, she was uh, at Macmillan, which is a big publisher um, owned by Holtzbrink, which is an Austrian um, media company. And they were worried about self-published authors, people who would write a book and then they would self-publish and then Macmillan would go to them and say, can I publish your next book? But she started hearing that instead of jumping at the chance to get published by a, a legitimate, you know, one of the big publishers, they... She started hearing people say, I don't know, like, I don't know if I need a publisher because I could do a PDF on Amazon. I could sell it and keep all the money myself. Why do I need you? And it hits her like, wow, this is dangerous, right? Like if, if authors don't need publishers, right? And why do they not need publishers is now you can coordinate what the publisher does by hiring a gig worker to do the editing, hiring someone else to do the layout. Um, putting it onto a platform, using a different system to collect the money, advertising on Facebook or Instagram, right? You now are coordinating the activities that a publisher would do, but you're coordinating them indirectly, right? And the reason we could do that has to do with lower transaction costs, lower search costs, um, um, uh, if you if you if you look at uh, Ronald Coase and Coase's theory of theory of a firm, a firm exists when it's cheaper to basically coordinate things or transact inside a hierarchy versus outside a hierarchy in a marketplace. And now the marketplace increases game work better. So what do they do? They said, okay, how could we coordinate authors differently? They create a platform that becomes Thrive Reads, and it it, it is a platform for for self would be self published authors. They they write a book. It's not a manuscript. It's not even done. Then they coordinated um, hundreds of really avid readers of this particular genre, young adult fiction, 
originally it was romance. Now it's broadly young adult fiction. And then these 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 this audience, like if you're writing a book, rather than write the whole book, maybe I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around a lot, but this is one reason I think this book is one that I'm the most proud of is because the content I already was developed in collaboration with people I was using it with. By the time I wrote it, I had already tested out a lot of this. And a lot of these stories are actually like real stories. Now, these authors get to do that here because they enter into, they interact with a marketplace. And these people are reading the book and saying, Aiden, you know, I love the book, but, you know, Jim, he seems more like a northern person than a southern person. Or wouldn't it be cool if, you know, there was this twist that you added and then you're co-creating it with them? Anyway, long story short, they do all kinds of interesting stuff to design this thing. And um, and then and then and, and basically there's a competition, top ten become top five, top three. I think they do it like four once every four times a year. And then the winner, of course, gets a publishing contract. And they had never had an author turn down their publishing contract. So what they've done is they've coordinated audience and authors differently. And by coordinating it, they've taken what could have been a fatal threat to their business model, an alternative to the centralized model, and they've basically made it win wind in their sales. They have they've turned it into an advantage. So the central question is, what is uncoordinated that you'd like to coordinate? That's an example of somebody you worked with, but but I just want to emphasize as well, you are rewriting the rules of consulting as well and how you've done your own business. You apply these to yourself and to your business as well. Maybe we'll share, if you don't mind, how you're using this coordinate the uncoordinated for your own business. And I will say it's still, it's still early days, but here's my theory. We'll, we'll see if, we, if it's true and where we can pull it off, is that a more efficient way to deliver consulting services is by coordinating clients to help each other. So we've launched the Outthinker Network, um, and the first network is a chief strategy officers, and now we've launched a network of entrepreneurs. And what we do is we find these people. A lot of them are former M McKinsey, Bain, BCG partners, or you know, but not necessarily only from consulting. But they 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 know their stuff, right? And then we we have about hundred of these people. And they get together and like, let's say you have a problem. You'll say, hey, how do you set up a digital transformation office? And then instead of calling up a consulting firm and what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to sell you on a million dollar project. You instead, we find other members who have done that before and you get together on Zoom and they coach you. Uh, and then they'll say, I have a topic like how what do we do about China? We did a session on China recently. Then we found a thought leader, Chris Marcus, um, from uh, Oxford Said Business School, and he's a, wrote this great book on China. And so they get together, and 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 he talks, and then they talk amongst each other. Now, one of our members said, "This is like getting McKinsey caliber advice from people who really have your best, you know, really have your best interest at heart." So the theory is, we'll see if we can prove it is, this becomes, in Porter's Five Forces, a substitute for consulting that's radically more efficient. Thinking about the same thing as what Macmillan did, it, it leans into neurodiversity as well. So you're getting to see the same challenge from multiple different lenses, different people, different backgrounds, different education. And as you know, from 
the more you read, the more you realize there's universal rules. There's laws behind all this stuff that repeat over and over again. And if you can generify them, you can apply them to anything. Generify them. Exactly. Exactly. I think that 36 strategies is exactly what the whole point of this, of the methodology is, is the 36 strategies are a catalog of generified patterns. So coordinate the uncoordinated is a platform business model. It is blockchain. It is crowdsourcing, right? It is community. But we abstract all those things as a generic pattern of coordinate the uncoordinated. And then you say, okay, they did that in publishing. How could you do that in consulting? How could you do that in banking? How could you do that, you know, wherever? And then you, tra- so you, so you take the, the specific pattern, you generify it, then you translate it over to the new domain, and then you, trans- and then you translate it down into the, new, into the existing. That's what I love about the book, man, because again, it, once you have the lens and you dedicate the time to actually understanding them, you, you don't lose them. You see them everywhere then. You see these patterns everywhere. It makes it easier for you to sell your idea too because, you know, you, you, like you know, when, when you, I haven't, I, I've heard, I haven't been in movie pitches, but I've heard movie pitches go something like this. This is like, um, like, I've heard, yeah. You know, this is like this movie meets that movie, right? This is like, um, uh, I don't know, when, when, when Harry mate met Sally in space, right? You can kind of start imagining what that is. Uh, and so it also helps you sell your idea. This is what we're going to do here in banking is what Apple did when it introduced the iPad. We kind of alluded to this earlier on. This is forced two front battles. And here's where Sun Tzu said, appear at places where your competitor, your he must r- rush to defend and rush to places where he least expects. And this is the strategic pattern of forcing the competitor into a defensive position by flustering them with a two-front battle. This is one of my favorite ones. It's, 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 it's one of the harder ones to apply because it kind of requ- requires a two-step thought process. But the, the, the core idea is your attack, your, 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 it comes from a Chinese story, a besieged way to rescue Zhao. One state's attacking the other, and another state who's a friend of the one they're being attacked wants to support. So they're thinking, let's move our troops and help defend them. But then someone says, rather than do that, why don't we attack the attacker while the attacker's troops are marching towards the target? We go and we attack their their city, which is now underguarded. And that forces the opponent then to retract into a defensive position. So they've called off the attack by moving them into a defensive position. And the idea is that you fluster your opponent, as you said, because you're attacking from two fronts. It is, or forcing them, rather, I would say, forcing them to compete on two fronts. Like uh, tigers or tigers, when they attack, they attack in pairs. So if you're trying to defend yourself one against one, you're exposing yourself to the other. Now, in business, the idea is not to put you on two fronts, but to put your opponent on two fronts. The way to do that is to force them to keep competing with their existing competitors while they're competing with you and you're attacking for another another, uh, perspective. The most easy way to apply this is to think about the fact that... um, that uh, Peter Drucker said the definition of strategy is the answer to the question, what business are you in? And it's never easy to answer that, is what he says. So what business is Zappos in? Late Tony Shea, former CEO of, 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 of Zappos, he said all the time, we're not in the shoe business. 
we're in the customer service business. So now you're a shoe company. You have to compete against all these shoe companies to compare against this, this weird um, customer service company. Or Starbucks. Um, they, they say, we're not in the coffee business. We're in the people business. So now you're, you're, you're trying to sell coffee. You have to compete with all these coffee companies. But now you also, on this other front, have to compete with this weird company that views themselves as a, as a people. In the interest of time, I'm going to keep moving along. And the next one is be good. And this one, I think we're seeing it more and more with companies like Patagonia, for example. But you say here, and I hadn't heard this term before, which is, again, I couldn't believe it. It's a military term. Being good builds moral force, which is a an ancient military term that came from Karl von Clausewitz in the 19th century, the Prussian military strategist. And he believed that in addition to physical force, the best armies also have an equally important spiritual and moral force, such as dedication and a sense of sacrifice. When physical strength is not enough to win, moral force can carry soldiers to victory. Now that came to mind from an understanding of sport because, for example, South Africa won the World Cup the other day, last week, and I do truly believe that they reached somewhere inside for this moral force because they they played with this unhuman-like strength in the last dying moments of the game to win by each each game, the quarterfinal, semifinal, and final by a point. And they consistently talked about playing for their country. And I thought that's exactly what Kayan's talking about here. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and the effect of that moral force is compounding uh, as well. I think we see it right now right, in the world, right? We see Israel versus Palestine is becoming a battle of moral force. Um, n- not only do Israeli leaders want Israeli soldiers to feel that they're on the right side and Palestinians want their people to feel like they're on the right side, but also beyond that in um in um, universities and in media, right? It's it's and, and the same thing with Ukraine and Russia, right? So, um, moral force is a just a human principle, but what's changed? Why it's made becoming more important, I think, and the way we know it's more important because we can measure and see that successful companies talk about this more frequently than their less successful peers, is the emergence of the importance of ecosystem-based competition. So my wife w- worked at MasterCard for a long time. I know they're a client of yours and you do work with them. And uh, in, in my podcast, I got to interview the former CEO, IJ Bunker. Now this guy took over the company as a $25 per share com- you know, stock. When he left, it was a $350 per share stock. I, I don't know, there's probably, I wouldn't know, I don't know for sure, but there's probably no other CEO that has achieved that level of value creation, right? What he said was, the, the core strategy was this, was, we recognize that the market opportunity is cash, kill cash. Don't worry about Visa. Don't worry about American Express. There's so much more cash out there. Let's convert that to digital and then let's capture our fair share. But he also was able to show that a world beyond cash, as they called it, is a better world. A world beyond cash, a drug dealer is not going to sell drugs to your kid and have that not be traceable. Today, governments, when they give payments to their citizens, like for you know retirement or for medical th- costs, when they do it with cash, it, a lot of it gets filtered out, gets lost, uh, you know, gets stolen, gets redirected. 
But if we had a direct payment from the government to the citizen, then we can avoid it. So what does that do? Who, who else cares about that? Well, governments care about that. The UN cares about that. NGOs care about that. The young Gen Z person that's super smart that's trying to get to deciding if they're going to work for your company, they care about that. It creates that soft power, that moral force that activates both internally and in the ecosystem in alignment between your success and what we all what we all want. Uh, so that, it, it, yeah, that's it's inspiring and really powerful. And I think you know when you see this coming to life with companies like Patagonia, you, you you're more likely to actually buy that product. And and I think before people would talk a good game. Like, you know, maybe say, oh, yeah, I'd definitely buy it if it was, you know, I knew the farmer was getting equi equitable pay and maybe the product didn't do any harm to the to the world, to the planet, you know. But now you see, for example, even on Amazon, that there's there's a pledge, a climate pledge on a lot of products. And you can filter by that now, which I thought was great because it is, it's so important to actually put your money where the, where your mouth is with this stuff. And I, I think we're getting, I hope we're getting there anyway. I know recessions and finance can put pressure on people in this world. I think, yeah, I think we're getting there. I think you can almost, you can think, of, I like to think of it as like a, um, what's it called? A, uh, an iceberg, right? The tip of the iceberg is messaging, right? Look, my investors want me to make a lot of money. The way I make money is by selling plastic, but I'm going to message we're going to be carbon neutral, right? So that's great that if you, you know, authentically you're pursuing that, it's great. But what if the way you made money was by selling less plastic? Now that's the next level. That's the business model alignment to being good. And then how do you maintain that business model so that five years, 10 years from now, you guys don't, the, the next CEO doesn't decide, hey, we're going to sell plastic, right? Is you align your owner base so that they want you to sell less plastic let's keep going because there, there's more here and back for the strategist this is one that you planted the seed for earlier on which is to create something out of nothing kind of like the ipad story the narratives that we use to decide to see our options are grounded the west are grounded in the games that we play and the games we play in the u.s in the west generally have this rule that you have to play with the pieces on the board you can't take a second queen out of your back pocket and put it next to my king right you can't add another rugby player to the to the to the field right you there's a certain number of players and you can't have more than that and so what this speaks to is what if you instead played a different type of game like the analog to chess in many asian countries is go and in go you don't actually move the pieces on the board you can only add pieces and remove pieces i'm not saying one's a better way to play but it's just a very different way to think about playing the game so what would you like to add to the game creating a new category, for example, like the tablet, like sports drinks, creating a new occasion or need in marketing. That's a very uh, powerful approach when you can. Like, uh, I think I think I, in the book, I think I have the Procter & Gamble trying to sell Febreze and they couldn't sell it. And so they changed their advertising to create this Febreze moment, which was a ritual that after their target customer, which was a woman, uh, before what you found is before they left a room after they had cleaned it up, there was some ritual that they typically did. I don't know, maybe they just flattened the sheets or they 
looked around the room before they closed it. And so they linked that moment with the Febreze moment of spraying Febreze and that symbolized the, it's clean, you know? And then it became the most successful product that they had launched uh, in the history. So that, that, that's what it's about, creating occasions and needs, creating customers. You, 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 know, you, got, you had that whole series with Rita talking about Clayton Christensen. You know, a lot of his stuff is about creating uh, consumption out of non-consumption. Why isn't someone buying or do, using you or your competitor? Usually it is, according to him, or maybe it's according to Scott Anthony, because they can't afford it, because they don't know how to use it, because they don't have access to it, or because they don't have time. That's why they're not taking a plane. That's why they're not buying your sofa, a sofa, right? So, um, so many applications of that. But the core thing is, we look at the p we look at the pieces on the board rather than adding new new thinking to add new things to the game. Brilliant, brilliant. And and because you mentioned Elon Musk earlier on, we we gotta give our audience part three of the book. So there's five parts of the book, and then there's a really really comprehensive appendix of all previous models. For example, the strategies are in there, etc. So this book is is a brilliant book, and there's an updated version as well. That's available online and on Kaihan's website. You'll find all that kind of stuff. But let's give the five habits of outthinkers, maybe. And and this is one you talked about the first. The first one is mental time travel. And this is where Elon Musk is a master. I mean, yeah, the, the first habit is mental time travel, which is to imagine the future. It's something humans can do, very few animals can do. It's a step mentally out in the future and envision the future. This is a chess player thinking 10 moves out, for example. So that's where it has to start, which is why it's so helpful you know, for to have, if you have a BHAG or you've got a painted fish, a vision or a future or a core purpose or something, all of those I think are just tools to get people to say, oh, I remember, I remember what game we're playing. What is the vision? What's the checkmate look like so that we can practice mental time travel? So that's, that's a habit that you want to start with. In the book you talk about where if you can trigger the mirror neurons in somebody's head so they can see themselves in that story, they're more likely to be your ally with that vision. Like a theory of conflict is when two people have different vision, visions that are inconsistent, right? All military conflict, you can say, came from that. So you, the, the further out we can move, if we can align people on a shared vision, then they envision themselves in that. They're happy with that. Their mirror neurons are firing. So they start seeing you as them, them as you. And so they're more likely to collaborate and want to support you. I'm going to slightly step outside because I do read your newsletter and your recent one I thought was such an important one. And particularly if you're looking for coaching as a corporate entrepreneur or trying to sell an idea with inside an organization, your recent article where you wrote about the alignment of, because if you think about conflict, there's a lot of conflict between a corporate innovator and the, and the organization. And often it's the fault, and I've been there, I've done this myself as a corporate in innovator. I didn't align my solution with the problems the company had identified that they wanted to solve. So I wasn't aligned and therefore I'm trying to sell this idea that's totally beyond the strategy, certainly for the next year, maybe or two. And I'm trying to force this square peg into the round hole and I fail and I blame the company when actually I got to realize when I point the finger, there's three pointing back to myself. As an entrepreneur, you want to appreciate that your company is also a customer. And just if you're trying to sell something to your customer and your customer rejects you, you don't say, oh, there's something wrong with you. You try to, if we want to link it to the mental time travel, you want to envision with them what is the future that they want. 
I want my life to be easier. I want to have more love in my family. I want to live healthier, whatever that is, right? And there, understand how your product can help them realize the future. Similarly, if you're doing it inside a company, you want to understand what the company's vision is. And less than 55% of mid-level managers can name even two of their company's top strategic priorities. There's a big gap between what companies you know, say their strategy is and people understanding the strategy, which if you flip the lens from me as a of an innovator trying to figure out what my company wants, the reverse thing is you're a leader and your people don't know what you want. They don't know your strategy. And so creating the vision, this is what we're building. And this is another reason why that MasterCard strategy is so great. A world beyond cash. Envision that. And whatever you can do to help us step towards that, that's what we want to do. Now, you're not coming up with ideas about lipstick. And you're not saying, oh, we're not a lipstick company, we're a credit card company, right? You're saying a world beyond cash. That's what we're up to. And it just simplifies it so beautifully and allows people to al align their activities, interests, their curiosities, their brainstorming, their energy, align that with that shared vision. Brilliant, brilliant. So I'm going to move on because we're on two of five now, which is attacking the interconnected system. So this is even, again, I'm going to put it in the terms of the corporate innovator here or the corporate entrepreneur, is that I need to understand the ecosystem and see the links, and I need to be, in a way, a systems thinker. Easy way to think about it is uh, understanding the interconnected system, being a systems thinker. So you've, you've created your long-term vision, a world beyond cash, and then you break it down to its components. What must be true for us to achieve the world beyond cash, right? We need governments. We need technology. We need customers. We need payments. We need revenue. We need investors. And then from that, you can see which is the the the, the leverage point or the the part in the system that if I focus on that, it will solve it. Um, I love this book, the the one thing I think it's called, and they have this metaphor of like you 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 know this I can tell. Uh, what is the domino that if we knock that domino down, it it either knocks down all the other, makes all the other dominoes knock down or makes them irrelevant. And so, and 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 you could see that in Elon Musk's thinking uh, as well. He thinks about the system. Everyone's looking at energy production. And he says, hmm, what about energy consumption? What's the biggest consumer of energy that I could attack? Electric vehicles, right? So that's that, That's the second step. As you say in the book, it also informs your next move after that. For example, solar, solar panels. I know we're going to need more energy. Everything's going to be electric, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. That would be the next note. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yes, yeah. The next one is frame shifting. And again, this is about how do I sell my idea when there's multiple stakeholders in the system that I need to get over the line, get onto my side. So this is where the stratagems fit in. People see the options that they view as, as feasible and they trust the options that they view as feasible based off of the application of a pattern. So when you say this movie is like Harry Met Sally in space, people know those patterns and they can see it together. Um, it helps on two levels. It helps you generate the idea. Because humans, the way we generate new things, and we can see this with with with, with generative AI, the way we do it, where we create ideas is not come with completely new ideas. We combine existing things. You watch a Star Wars movie, and those creatures, you can tell, oh, that's an elephant with a rhinoceros and a giraffe, right? It's the combination of existing things. So that's what this is about. And in my methodology, I use the 36 stratagems as the building block. So you could say, coordinate the uncoordinated. This is what 
they did at Macmillan, what if we did that in banking? And the combination of those patterns then has you and other people say, oh, I can, I can see that. Number four here is the disruptive mindset. So many of our audience will have this, but you have a specific definition of this, which is to innovate faster, yes, but also to slow down the pace at which your competitors will attempt to copy or resist you. An idea that they copy quickly is worth less than an idea that take a long time to copy. If you look at net present value calculation, that idea, let's say you introduce a new idea, it increases your margin by, I don't know, 10%. If that lasts for 10 years, that's worth more than if it lasts for one year, right? So we want to extend the amount of time that we enjoy the advantage, which is to say we extend how long it takes competitors to copy you. Now, why will they not, why will they not copy you? It could be because they don't copy. They can't, which is what we talked about at the very beginning, but it's often because they choose not to. Why do they choose not to? Because what you're doing is inconsistent with something they believe. So we need to do things that are inconsistent with past practices, ultimately beliefs. And when you ask people to choose between their beliefs and not their beliefs, they're more likely to return their beliefs. Until you've proven that their beliefs are wrong, then they'll drop their beliefs. Isn't that so interesting that so many times a disruption comes from somebody who's a newcomer to that industry or arena, as Rita McGrath would say, like Elon Musk into cars or into rockets, you know, because they come with that beginner's mind that so often shows up in the work that you do. Yeah, exactly. Because for them, it's natural. So of course you do it this way. Um, yeah. I mean, Elon Musk going back, I don't want to dig it only about him, but I think he, he, he exemplifies this nicely is the pricing strategy that he deployed for electric vehicles is the pricing strategy that you use for electronics, not for cars. In cars, you start with a cheap car and then you build more expensive cars. In electronics, you, you, you first make an expensive iPhone and then you bring down the cost and make more accessible iPhones, right? And one of the, the last skills then you need to do that is to shape perceptions, which is the last of these five habits of outthinkers. Yeah, which is influence, which is understanding that your innovation is only creativity if it's, unless it's also adopted. As Steve Jobs says, innovation is, I think we talked about this in one of our prior podcasts, innovation is creativity that ships. We need people to buy it. We need investors to invest in it. We need suppliers to supply for us. We need distributors to carry it, right? So we have to be able to understand and shape perceptions, which is to say, to understand other people's views of the world. And if you have to try to shape those views of the world better to fit your innovation into their views of the world so that they pull it, pull it to them. Um, I think we'll talk about this in our next one um, from Driving Innovation from Within, that successful innovators view the political challenges, half of the problem-solving process. So you've done all this work, you've figured out you're going to sell electric vehicles at a high price, blah, 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 and then that's half the job. The rest of the job is the human side. Yeah, that, which is such the hard side, man. I'm, I'm so looking forward to getting that. You're, you're, you have a plane to catch, and it's been an absolute pleasure as always. By the way, I just want to mention part four of the book goes into playbook. So it, it tells you, gives you a lot of exercise how to put all the stuff we talked about into action, which is more something you can do with a team. Also, if you sign up to Kayan's Substack, you'll find more information there. Draws it very, very generous with the information that, that he gives away as well. But uh, it's always been a pleasure. Where can people find you, Kayan, for both the coaching, but also for any of your writing? Best places, 
kaihan.net, K-A-I-H-A-N.net, my website there. From there, you can get to Substack and other tools and everything. Author of Outthink the Competition, How a New Generation of Strategies Sees Options Others Ignore. Kaihan Krippendorf, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you.